This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. I think when you're using one less sense, you have to pay much more attention to your remaining senses. You're less distracted by the visual aspect of a dish. It's still important, but for us visually impaired folks, it's more about the different nuances that you taste when you take a bite of a food. You know, is it a one bowl, one spoon type dish, or is it something where you have to use a fork and a knife, or are things arranged so artfully on a dish that appeal to someone with a sense of sight, but then maybe it's hard to eat because you have to dig through a lot of garnish to get to the meat of things. So you begin to taste and smell more nuanced things than perhaps a sighted person could. That's Christine Ha, also known as The Blind Cook. She's a restaurateur, cookbook author, and the winner of Season 3 MasterChef. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the show. Words cannot describe how thrilled I am to have you join us here today. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Although you and I are legally blind, our conditions are different. Would you mind sharing a bit about yours? Yes. uh, My vision loss occurred because my optic nerves atrophied over time. So the optic nerve for people who don't know what that is, that's the, uh, the nerve that connects the eyeball to the brain. So I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition called neuromyelitis optica or NMO for short many, many years ago. And it mainly causes the immune system to primarily attack the nervous system uh, in the optic nerves and in terms of the spinal cord. So for me, I had a lot of optic nerve inflammation on and off in my 20s, and my optic nerve couldn't always recover, so they atrophied over time, and that's what caused my vision loss. And was yours a gradual decrease in vision? It was. The decrease, the acute decrease or vision loss, with, you know, the symptom for that you know, particular attack would happen fairly quickly. It could happen over a matter of hours. I would notice a difference for a, a few days, but the recovery process would be slow, and then Sometimes it would recover some vision, sometimes it would recover complete vision, and then it would decline again. So it was on and off like this for several years. Uh, And so then over time, it was a gradual decrease in my vision. Yeah, same with mine. It's over time. I have retinitis pigmentosa. So for me, it's, it's, I have central vision now. So it kind of just narrows in Mm -hmm. as time goes on. When did you first discover your passion for cooking? Well, that was actually uh, in college. I first went off to college to didn't know how to cook a thing, <laughs> which was quite shameful. And my first year I lived in the college dorm. So I mostly ate the dorm from the dorm cafeteria. And then my second year I moved out of the dorms into a small apartment uh, on uh, the west side of campus. And I had some roommates and then I figured I had to learn to cook because I didn't have enough money on a college budget to keep eating out. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to teach myself to cook. I did have vision at that time and I bought some cookbooks, some used cookbooks from from uh, the half price bookstore. I mm-hmm. bought some, you know, your <laughs> typical kitchen utensils from the big box stores and then I just kind of read these recipes and then started cooking from them word for word following the directions to a T. Uh I realized at that time I started missing my uh, mom's cooking because, you know, she was a Vietnamese refugee. My parents immigrated to the U.S. from Vietnam uh, in 1975, right around the time the war 
was ending. And so I grew up eating a lot of the Vietnamese foods, uh, Vietnamese comfort food, I would say. She actually passed away when I was young, when I was 14 years old, and she never taught me how to cook, didn't leave a recipe behind as many mothers and grandmothers uh, do or don't do. So I realized I missed her cooking, decided to buy some Vietnamese cookbooks and then try to teach myself by uh, reverse engineering or by memory and also using these recipes, uh, the foods that she cooked. And then it was at this time when, of course, I, I botched many dishes back in the day when I first started mm-hmm. cooking, but maybe after a few tries, I cooked something that was very simple, but it was tasty. And my friends would eat it. I ate it. Uh, and I think it was that moment uh, that I realized I started really enjoying cooking. And it was something very satisfying about being able to create something uh, and taking something about the process of taking raw ingredients and doing some things to them, applying heat to them, and then having someone enjoy my creation. I felt kind of, um, I guess there was just a lot of um, agency that I felt in being able to cook for myself and my friends. And then that, that sparked the joy in cooking for me. And then that's when I kind of continued and taught myself more and more, learned more about more ingredients, more techniques. Of course, they were still very simple back in those days, but it it was just that whole process and the idea of cooking, the art and the science behind it. And of course, most of all, the ability to make other people happy with something I made. That's what initially started my love for cooking. Are you into playing a couple of games with me? I'm totally up for it. Okay, cool. So the first one we're going to do is this or that. Okay. Morning person or night owl? Now I'm a morning person. I used to be a night owl when I was younger. (laughs) I kind of felt that there was a little bit of a story there, but I get it. Morning person. Edamame or green beans? Ooh. uh, Oh, that's a hard one. Right. Depends on the holiday, but let's let's go with uh, edamame. Okay. Chocolate or vanilla? Oh, chocolate. Totally. Quinoa or rice? Rice. Give up sugar or give up salt? Give up sugar. Oh my gosh, I'm the only, honestly, I think I've only found one guest and I've been doing this for four years that was on the sugar island with me, but I'll keep my sugar and give up salt. (laughs) (laughs) Fries or onion rings? Fries. Grilled cheese or mac and cheese? Oh, mac and cheese. Pizza or pasta? Pizza. Me too. That was easy. Right? (laughs) That game was easy. I always say that losing my vision, it actually helped me become a better cook. How has your vision loss enhanced your cooking experience? Well, I think when you're using one less sense, you have to pay much more attention to your remaining senses. So I would say you kind of hone in on those remaining senses or you're more in tune with them. And so I feel like your brain kind of changes as well when you lose your sight and you know, you're less distracted by the visual aspect of a dish. You know, I would say it's still important, but for us visually impaired folks, it's less important. And it's more about the different nuances that you taste when you take a bite of a food. It's also about the experience of eating the food. Is it an easy experience for someone with vision impairment to eat? You know, is it messy? Is it neat? Is it a one bowl, one spoon type dish? Or is it something where you have to use a fork and a knife or are things arranged so artfully on a dish that appeal to someone with a sense of sight? But then for us visually impaired folks, maybe it's hard to eat because you have to dig through a lot of garnish to get to the meat of things. So I think 
I think when you lose your vision, you do hone in on your olfactory sense, your your taste, uh, your touch senses, all these things factor into the cooking process. So I think you become, you, you begin to taste and smell more nuanced things than perhaps a sighted person could. That, and even the sounds of a kitchen mm-hmm. become mm-hmm. so much more prominent when, when we're cooking, because you're actually listening out for that boiling, that sizzling, that, that sense. I mean, like you said, sense of smell when something is, you know, brown, browning butter, a lot of visual cues are look and see when it's golden. Right. For the listeners who are low vision or blind, what advice would you give them to help reduce some of that fear and, and encourage them to follow their goals and dreams? My advice is start off small. And when you achieve a small goal, you should celebrate that. And I look back to when I started losing my vision gradually. And each time I lost more and more vision, I would have to start. Oh, I felt like I was starting over and teaching myself how to cook all over again. Yes. And it would feel very frustrating. I remember one year when I had vision and I was able to, for example, cook an entire Thanksgiving meal for my family, the turkey, the sides, everything, dessert. And then the next year I had lost more vision and then I could barely make something as simple as a sandwich. And I remember feeling very upset with myself and felt like I really regressed and I didn't know if I would ever be able to cook again independently. And I thought maybe it was time for me to give up, you know, cooking or whatever. But I think uh, maybe a few days passed and then I would try again. And then I was able to succeed at the sandwich, even though it was something very simple. But the fact that I look back and I said, oh, I couldn't do this the week before. And now I can, that's progress. And then maybe the next week, oh, I'm able to slice an orange in half without being able to see. And then the week after that, oh, maybe I was able to um, fry an egg in the pan and maybe it was messy, but I was able to do that, but I couldn't do that a week before or a month before. And I think when you, when you celebrate these small victories, it helps, first of all, give you encouragement to know that you are making progress when you realize that you are, you know, in a better place than you were a week ago or a month ago. And then, and secondly, it gives you more confidence to try new things. And because you realize that, Hey, I do have the ability to make progress. You know, maybe it'll take a long time, but I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, and so, and I feel like when you do celebrate these small victories, you, you start building that confidence and then it gives you the mental capacity to want to try bigger and bolder things in the kitchen. And, and it's all, it's all just progress, I would say. And it, it does, you know, it's not something that happens immediately overnight. It just takes time. But when you realize that you can do it, uh, I think that really, I would say boosts people's confidence, morale, and courage to try new things. So I would say, just remember, you know, you try small steps. And when you achieve those small steps, like notice that you've made progress and keep going. I totally get that. The first time I was able to chop again without that, that overwhelming fear of the knife, mm-hmm. I wanted to go out and celebrate, like literally go out and celebrate because I was so excited that I actually did it again. Totally can relate to that. I'm Mary Mammoliti, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Season 3 MasterChef winner and restaurateur, Christine Ha. Let's talk about your restaurants. 
So what was the inspiration behind your first restaurant, The Blind Goat? And then why did you choose the name? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> um, I, I live in Houston, which has a huge Vietnamese population. And a lot, there's so many great Vietnamese restaurants here. A lot of them are, I would call them uh, like first generation Vietnamese restaurants, meaning like people, my parents or grandparents, um, their traditional recipes that they came to the U.S. with. And, you know, I'm second generation. So I was born in the U.S. to Vietnamese parents. And I didn't feel like it was really my place to try to compete with these really great Vietnamese restaurants cooking traditional Vietnamese food. I wanted to do something different, put my own spin on it. Yet I love Vietnamese food. I wanted to share my heritage and my culture and my dishes that I grew up eating with the rest of the city. So kind of what I did was I wanted to take some street foods and comfort foods of Vietnam and uh, put my own modern personal twist on them, whether it's infusing Texas style ingredients, Gulf Coast ingredients, or modern techniques to uh, the dishes. And I, I think of myself as a consumer, when I go out, I like to eat like a lot of, try a lot of different dishes, share the food family style with my friends, you know, have a good cocktail, have good conversation, have a good experience, good service. The ambiance is nice. So I always do things um, when I do something in the restaurant, I always think from a consumer's perspective or a guest perspective, like would this, would I be happy with this? So I set out really to create a space I wanted to hang out at or to eat at or drink at. So my first establishment, the blind goat, um, it was, that's the kind of menu I wanted was to take street foods that maybe people in the U S had never really experienced, but, you know, have that exposure for them. Uh, and so they can learn about that Vietnamese food is beyond noodle soups and sandwiches, uh, and then put it in a really fun, whimsical, uh, ambiance. So for me, I wanted a, a fun, whimsical name and I called it the blind goat because I'm known as the blind cook. Uh, and goat is actually my Zodiac sign. I was born in Eastern astrology. I was born the year of the goat. So we thought it was kind of a fun name, um, to reflect the fun atmosphere that we wanted to, uh, conjure at the blind goat. And so that's how we came up with that name. Okay. Tell me one of the top items on your menu Hmm. or maybe one of your favorites. Yeah. I mean, there are so many iterations of our menu. Um, you know, we're right now we're actually working to move the blind goat into its own brick and mortar space. Cause this one was opened as a 400 square foot station. So it's fairly small and it's inside right. a food yeah. hall. So our menu had to really be conducive to cooking in a very small kitchen. And at the same time, the pandemic hit after we had opened. And so we had to pivot with our menu as well, because people at that time were not going out to eat. They weren't really looking for experimental food. They wanted foods that they knew um, they wanted comfort food. So the menu has changed over time. I I want to say there's two dishes. So one, something that we're serving right now um, that I really like is our uh, crab and garlic noodles. So we're t- we take soft shell crab, we lightly batter it, fry it, and then we serve it on these things called garlic noodles, which is actually an inspiration I took from my visit to the Bay Area um, over many years. There's Vietnamese restaurants up there serving 
crab with uh, garlic noodles. And it's kind of a mix between a little bit of European and a little bit of Vietnamese. So the noodles, you're really just taking like spaghetti pasta and then you're coating it and tossing it with a mixture of like soy sauce, fish sauce, uh, a lot of garlic, Parmesan cheese. Um, and so you've got this really umami bomb, savory noodle dish with some seafood on top. So that's like something we're serving now at the blind goat that I really like. And then a dish that I want to bring back, for example, um, to when we move the blind goat into its own space and ha- we, you know, we're building out a bigger kitchen, uh, a dish I want to bring back is actually um, called, we call it the Vietnamese pizza, because it's kind of really the only way I can um, try to have, you know, non-Vietnamese people understand what it is. But in Vietnamese, it's called bánh tráng nướng, which bánh tráng means rice paper and nướng means grilled. And, and I discovered this food on a, uh, a trip to Vietnam when I was trying some modern Vietnamese food over there. And it's kind of like the younger generation uh, of cooks and chefs growing up and creating their own new Vietnamese dishes. And what it is, is taking rice paper, the kind that you would wrap around like spring rolls or summer rolls. And then you let you, you actually grill it and put toppings on top of it. And it becomes like this crispy, slightly chewy snack oh that you my eat. Gosh. Yeah. Uh, and so we, you know, you can do different toppings on it you know, we did pork belly on it. We want to try doing like baby clams on it, different herbs, different sauces. Um, so that's actually something I want to bring back at the, when we move the restaurant into its new space. And what can I say to convince you to come and bring (laughs) blind goat here to Toronto? Because that sounds incredibly delicious. Oh man. I love Toronto. Toronto's got so much good food too. I love it. You've got a second restaurant that you're working on or you've opened up. Yes, we've opened up the second one. So the second one's called Xin Chao. Uh, that means hello in Vietnamese. And that one's kind of a, I wanted it to be a neighborhood restaurant where the menu is also very indicative of my background, meaning, you know, Vietnamese um, back Vietnamese heritage growing up in Texas. So there we actually smoke our own Texas barbecues. So we do smoke beef ribs, smoke beef cheeks, smoke duck. And then we infuse that into our Vietnamese dishes. So we'll have like, uh, for example, uh, in Vietnamese it's called gói vị, which means duck salad. And it's like a cabbage based salad with a ginger fish sauce vinaigrette. It's got some roasted peanuts in there. And typically it's made with um, just braised uh, or poached duck, but we actually barbecue the duck. So it's got like um, the post oak, you know, smoky flavor of Texas barbecue duck. And then we serve that in the salad and we add like our own mix of like jackfruit, arugula. We still keep the ginger fish sauce vinaigrette traditional. Uh, we put like candied walnuts in it instead of your roasted peanuts. Um, so we kind of do like those kinds of fun fusions, I would say, of like Texas and Vietnamese food at Sinchow. So take us on a little tour of your kitchen. So how organized does it have to be? And what type of indicators do you use to help like identify maybe certain ingredients, spices, uh, even elements? Yeah, I'm sure you know, Mary, because I'm sure your kitchen is similar to mine. Like there's, you know, first of all, I use some tactile um, raised bump dot stickers that help me figure out my stove knob. So I have a At home, I have a gas stove, um, so I have the markers on there. So I know if I line up the the knob with the the bump dot sticker, I'll know, okay, this is medium heat, you know, and I have it on 
my microwave, for example. And a lot of these appliances nowadays, I mean, for sighted people, they love it. It's like touchscreen. It looks really flush and nice. But for us, it's a nightmare. Visually impaired folks, <laughs> it's like, you don't know where the buttons are. There's like a million functions in one appliance or one tool. You don't know, like, yeah, it's so it can be very daunting. Uh, but aside from that, like the rest of my kitchen is just extremely organized. So I have my knives hanging on a magnetic knife rack in a certain order that I've memorized. So I know like first two knives or first three knives are my chef's knife and my utility knife, and then my paring knife, then my bread knife. Um, all of my spices are arranged in a drawer in alphabetical order. Uh, of course, you know, I have a lot of spices, so I can't memorize everything I have in the drawer at once. I know they're alphabetical order, but I also use an app on my phone that lists out everything I have in terms of my pantry inventory. So it's a, it's a list I label pantry inventory, you know, and under the spice column, um, or section, it'll list all the spices I currently have at home. And so I can scroll through that list in alphabetical order and know and count, for example, in my spice drawer, and I'll find the spice. And of course, you know, I'll smell it and then I'll know if it's garlic powder versus oregano versus star anise. So um, I use my sense of smell a lot when it comes to spices, but everything's just very organized. My pantry's organized. I have a section, a bin that's for baking items, a bin for like canned goods, a bin for snacks. So everything just has to be very organized in the kitchen. Yeah, we've been doing the home edit for years. <laughs> right? We're just, we've been organizing forever, just so we know where everything is. Yeah. Um, um, what are some of your favorite features of your kitchen? And if you could change anything, what would it be? Oh, hmm. I, we moved into a new house about a year ago. So our new kitchen is much nicer. It's more spacious. It's got great lighting. So I do a lot of cooking demos and on video and stuff. So the lighting's much better. We have a huge kitchen island that's um, good for prepping food and, and plating food. So I love our new kitchen. What would I change about it? Mm, well, this is kind of minor, but our microwave is on the wall and it's quite high and I'm short. I'm only five <laughs> three. So it can be quite dangerous and tedious to open the microwave and try to pull out a big hot bowl of soup when it's like yep. above your head. So that's what I would change. I wish I had a, lo a lower set microwave. You got to get the stepladder to get your soup out. Exactly. <laughs> Do you have any favorite tips or even kitchen hacks that you could share that'll help even like the beginner home cook? Yeah. So one tool when people often ask chefs, like, what's your favorite tool in the kitchen? And of course, like people will say their chef's knife, but I think one of my favorite tools is the bench scraper. It's also known as a dough cutter or a dough scraper. It's like a flat blade, I guess, with a handle on it. It's, it's not that big, but people use it to like cut up their dough and, and divide their dough up into different sizes or different balls or whatever to like roll out. But for me, I use it to scrape up all the ingredients on my cutting board. So let's say I I've diced like a carrot. And, you know, when you're visually impaired, you don't know where your carrots have flung. Sometimes they fly off the cutting board, sometimes they're on the side of the cutting board. But the bench scraper allows you to scoop all of the ingredients together um, and make a big pile. And then you can use that to actually hoist your ingredients up on that and, and move it over to a bowl or to the pot. So for me, a bench scraper is very um, important to me as not just a visually impaired cook, but I think as to any cook in general, it's really useful. Okay, fill in the blanks. I'm always late to blank. To sleep. Blank is how I temporarily escape. Uh, 
television. Blank is my love language. Quality time. If you weren't doing what you were doing today, what would you be? I would be probably a struggling writer. If I could go anywhere right now, I would go to blank. Spain. I want to try blank. I want to try uh, surfing. Mm, okay, I deserve a gold medal in dishwashing. <laughs> I do it a lot. They just say, I love these answers. They're the first things that come to mind, which I'm sure is exactly what you want. <laughs> I love to ask every single guest to share a little kitchen confession with us. Do you have one that you could share? <laughs> well, right when you said that, I thought of something. I'm like, oh, I'm going to probably regret sharing this, but it's the first thing that came to mind. So Mary, you're going to be letting in on a secret. But speaking of love rice, it. so growing up, like my parents didn't have a lot of money. You know, they came here as refugees with pretty much nothing in their pocket. So Growing up, of course, they they missed the foods that they had from home and they couldn't find, of course, the all the ingredients that they were used to back in Vietnam here. So they Vietnamese people, you know, they eat a lot of seafood. Of course, they eat a lot of rice. They eat a lot of fish sauce. But the only, you know, fish that we could afford growing up was either canned sardines or canned tuna. <laughs> so a meal that my mom would often feed me and it's going to sound really disgusting, but to this day, I can eat it and think about my childhood. It's steamed jasmine rice with canned tuna and a little bit of Vietnamese fish sauce. <laughs> and it sounds very gross. And every time I eat it, my husband is like so grossed out because it looks <laughs> gross. It sounds gross. It smells not that great. But to me, when I eat, it, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just childhood. But yes, it's so like the best that's thing my, ever. My, my kitchen <laughs> confession is that not all chefs eat great all the time. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. I loved it. <laughs> so if listeners want to reach out, they want to find you, they want to get more information, they want to follow you, where can they find you? Well, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. My handle is the blind cook. Uh, and yeah, I'm on YouTube as well. Christine hot tube. Uh, I, you know, check all of my social media fairly often. So please follow me and see what I'm up to next. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Mary. It was fun. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. You challenged my brain quite a bit for this early in the morning. (laughs) It's that time. We've reached the end of another show. Did we get your stomach growling? Head over to kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. Plus, you can check out ami.ca forward slash kitchenconfession for all the latest on the podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and review so we can keep bringing you more episodes you'll love. Our producer and editor is Matt Agnew, and I'm your host, Mary Mammolini. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.